Hello again. Welcome. It's On Mike with Jordan Rich. You know, when it comes to radio, Joe Martell, he was born to do it. And boy, did he succeed. He's one of the best morning men and overall disc jockeys to ever crack the mic. Joe hails from the great state of Maine, is a proud Marine veteran. And as you'll hear, he worked for Cincinnati powerhouse WLW, hosting an all-night radio show across much of the country and Canada. I know a little something about that. Later, he spent decades in Boston at WROR and Mix 98.5. He teamed up for one of the most successful morning shows in the city's history, The Joe and Andy Family. Joe also hosted a very popular show Saturday night at the Oldies, and he worked in Houston and West Palm Beach. Now he's a gentleman rancher out west and the author of two books, Radio Pro, Radio Pros and Legends Share Their Secret to Success, and a brand new biography of his close friend, the late actor Robert Urich. But I certainly remain a close friend and a big fan of this guy, Joe Martell, who, as you'll hear in this brief air check, has the pipes and knows how to use them. 7.45 in Mix 98.5. Phillies beat the Braves 4-3 yesterday. Do you believe that, huh? Giving them a three-games-to-two lead, the National League Championship Series, and a guy named Len Dykstra, former Met, came up with a key hit. Good morning from Mix 98.5. Are you having a bad hair day today? Do you need a song? Call me on the mix lines at 931-1234 to Mix 98.5. want to hear from you. Oh, to hear those dulcet tones of Joe Martell, it is a treat. You're in some beautiful country in uh, in the yeah. far west, but you sound like you're next door, and it's great to hear from you, Joe. Seriously. It's so cool to hear your voice. You're a longtime friend, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. We belong be to an exclusive club of former morning men. <laughs> Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. People ask me all the time, do I miss it? Yeah, I miss the interaction with the callers, as I'm sure you do. But uh, as far as missing radio, I'm having so much fun writing now, and uh, that's my new thing. That's always been my second love anyway, writing, broadcasting first. But, um, yeah, I kind of miss radio, but I'm really full-time into writing, as you know, Jordan, so... We're going to be talking about both books, the new one on Robert Urich, one of my favorite actors, and, of course, Radio Pro in a minute. But just a little catch-up for those mm-hmm. catching the podcast, and we have many people all over the world are now listening. You, of course, had a terrific career in radio in Boston, but elsewhere. And tell us where you got your start, the actual first gig. Maine. <laughs> I was a high school reporter at WCSH AM 97 in Portland, Maine. I was mm. a sophomore at Chevers High School. Jesuit High School, and they were looking for an afternoon reporter, and I said, I'll do it, and scared to death, went in on Bob Arnold's Blue Room. He played music in the afternoon, hits of the day, and, uh, and he had different high school correspondents. That was my first job. You know, it's really interesting, if I may insert this, Jordan. Sure. About 20 years later, I actually went back to manage that same radio station. So that was, uh, was kind of cool. I like that. Mm. And that's where it all started in my home state. You know what's interesting about that? It's not anything unusual to hear that from people like you and me. In those days, in the pioneer days, you took a job, even if you didn't know what the heck you were doing, because you were so eager to get into the business. Isn't that yeah. cool? Yeah. WIDE in Biddeford, Maine, a little uh, thousand-watt radio station, 500 watts at night. I mean, uh, we barely were heard from one end of Main Street to the other, but we were on the radio. And you got to do everything. You got to do high school basketball games, football games. You went to the town council meetings with an old Ampex uh, recorder, <laughs> record the, the uh, city council meeting, yeah. got to play it back. You did interview shows. You really got well-rounded in the business. And I, 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 I sadly say that 
that's absent today. And boy, a lot mm. of people could really use it. Although, I think a lot of people, you know probably more about this than I do, Jordan, can do their own shows online now. Sure. Am I correct about that? Well, we're doing it right here as a podcast, yeah. and it's becoming prevalent. You know, when you say that about what we did and the skill sets, it reminds me of the old Hollywood glory days when actors and actresses would be trained in all the essentials from horseback riding to speech <laughs> to fencing. And in a way, I mean, we and you and I are examples of this, had to know how to edit, had to know how to write on the fly, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you learn by doing. Yeah, you do. Speaking of which, I forgot all about that. Yeah, you went out and wrote your own commercials, your 60-second commercial, a 30-second commercial. But boy, did that come in handy later on when we quote-unquote moved up the ladder (laughs) in broadcasting. That field work that we did at smaller stations really, really helped so much. And you got to do whatever you wanted to do, basically, on the air, as long as you kept it clean, of course, you know. Right, right. Well, but, you're, uh, you're one of those guys who decided uh, along the way to tweak certain things in your favor and in the audience's favor. There's one particular story of a station where I think you were working late night or overnight when you had some fun. Can you share that with us? Are you, are you talking about when I got fired? Uh, of course. What else would I bring up? <laughs> yeah, WFAU in Augusta, Maine. I was doing the... Uh, 5 p.m. to sign-off shift. Back then, the stations would sign off around midnight. And uh, every hour was a different format. I'd go in and I'd do the news after CBS News on the hour. And then uh, I had organ time, sponsored by the Lathe Fuel Company of, of, of Augusta, Maine. And that was organ music for like 15 minutes. And then I went into some other kind of format. Well, about 7 o'clock, I think it was around 7.15 after the news, I, we had pop standards like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Rosemary Clooney, all these classic popular vocalists of the day. Well, when I got off the air, we signed off at 11.15. There was a place across the street from the radio station called Doc's Tavern. I think it's still there in Augusta, Maine. People up your, your way will probably be familiar with it. It used to be a hangout for kids, and I wasn't very old at the time. I I can't even remember. Probably, oh gosh, maybe 20 at the time, and I used to go in there for a hamburger. Well, all the kids would tease me about playing old fogey music, so I decided, well, the next night we'll fix that. So I went on the air, and I started playing Elvis and Ricky Nelson and the Beach Boys, (laughs) things of that nature. And uh, lo and behold, the door to the station opened around 8.15, and Norm Galland, God bless him, walked in with Mona Toothaker, who was the operations (laughs) manager. That's a real name, by the way. I love that name, yeah. yeah. Mona Toothaker. I can't believe I remember all these people. It was years ago. And they both walked in, and I could tell she had her hands on her hips, and Norm had this look on his face that would frighten the meanest bull. So I said, "Uh uh-oh. And he came in with this other kid that did weekends, and he said, Stanley, take the board, Uh. and Joey, stand up. And that was it. I was unceremoniously canned. And by the way, in 2013, talk about being humbled, I was inaugurated into the main broadcaster's Hall of Fame. Uh, Ryan Cody, a longtime friend of mine who's on the air in Augusta, uh, worked behind the scenes to get me nominated, along with my old friend Bruce Glazier. And... uh, when I was there speaking, I looked to my right, and Norm Gallant had passed on, but his his wife was there, a wonderful woman, and she was just holding her head, and, and <laughs> like I was telling the story of how I got fired. So after I went over, after I got my little speech done, and I said, 
I'm so sorry. And she said, Joe, I'm so sorry Norman fired you. You are such a good talent and a good person. And I mm. hugged her and I gave her a big hug. And But, uh, yeah, that's what happened. Mm. I, that was my... Gee, that was my first full-time job out of Emerson College, and I was devastated. I thought, I'm never going to work mm. again. What kind of a recommendation am I going to get? Well, what's but, really uh, funny about that, Joe, is, and we've all done this, you kind of forget that when you're on the radio and broadcasting anything, anybody can hear it, particularly the owner. So it's not like <laughs> yeah. you're trying to cover something up. It was a crime right there in the open. Uh-huh. It does sort of uh, indicate to the listeners that you are a guy who knows music, and, of course, you became very well-known for one of the most successful oldie shows of all time. Can we even say oldies, or is yeah, 2005 yeah. I, an oldie? They, well, they call them classics now, but uh. I still call them oldies. And <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that show. And you know what made it successful? First of all, the callers. I had more fun with the callers. Big Tony from Everett, Georgia from Nashua. I can see the callers now. I can envision their faces over the phone. And uh, it was, you know, it was old home week every Saturday night. But management, and I have to put Gary Berkowitz at the top of the post on this one, followed by Lorna Osman. They were both in programming. They let me play songs that no one else played. A lot of stations, as you know, will only play like the top ten most requested songs or in Billboard. And uh, no, he said, go deep. You know, if, if it was a Boston favorite, play it. If somebody remembers a song, and that's why that show was different. I swear to this day, mm-hmm. yeah, I had fun with it, and I hope they like me. And the callers were tremendous. And uh, But the music, it's because we went so deep with, with songs. We played different ones every week. And uh, I think that's what really made that mm-hmm. show last for 12 years. And we were blessed with number one ratings for 12 consecutive years. And uh I was very, very proud of that show. Saturday night, live at the Old Absolutely. It's uh, embedded in my memory banks. It's a place to be every Saturday night. We're talking with Joe Martell, longtime friend, one of the great broadcasters. We'll talk in a moment or two about some of the really cool writing he's been doing and continues to do. But getting back to the uh, to the industry, something happened to you that's happened to many people, but when you're in the radio business as an announcer with so much writing on your voice, you had a couple of times in your later years broadcasting where your voice was victimized by illness, like a Greek tragedy to lose one's gift that you give to the world every day and it's your foundation for making money. Tell us about that situation, either one or both, and what it meant to you then and what it felt like. Well, I often say that you know, I, I had my lung removed at Newton Wellesley Hospital in 95, and it took me a year to come back from that operation. That was real serious. That was the result, doctors say, to uh, several bouts of pneumonia, which probably set me up for what you're referring to with my voice. So then I went to Houston, and I was doing really well there on the air on an oldie station, and KLDE, and I had a triple bypass, so I often choke and say, left my lung in Boston and my heart in Houston. (laughs) Then I went to West Palm Beach, and once again, Gary Berkowitz, he was the consultant. He said, we got the perfect morning guy for you. And uh, I said, geez, I don't know, Florida? And I said, isn't that like an old retirement home or something, Gary? And he said, Joe, this will be perfect for you. So I took the job and was doing really well, loved it, three years on the air, and my third year, I was having problems with my voice, and I got a cold, and I thought, well, okay, everybody gets laryngitis, whether you're on the air or not. 
and uh, I'll be okay. But I pushed it, and when I pushed it, I I damaged the vocal cords. Uh, I kept going on the air, in other words, every day when I should have probably been home. But you know how it is, Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, the show must go on. Right. And one day, I it popped. I felt something pop, and uh, I went to the doctor's right from the radio station, and he said, call the ambulance. Joe's going to uh, Jupiter Hospital, which was right up the road from West Palm Beach, where the station was. And the doctor said, I was sitting in bed, and I had a little chalkboard because I couldn't talk. And I wrote, when can I go back on the air? And the doctor looked at me and he said, back on the air? We don't even know if you'll talk again. And that's when the sobering thought hit me. And I, I panicked. I really did. I, I remember Kim, my wife, was sitting there next to me. And she said, what are we going to do? And I just looked at it with this, this plead in my eyes, like this has been my whole life, radio, being on the air. I don't know. And this, I wasn't saying that, but she knew what I was thinking. I had three nodules on my vocal cords, and my doctor, Dr. Lee, L-E-E, -E, said, I don't want to operate because you know what happened to Julie Andrews. Mm. And her voice changed dramatically after mm -hmm. she had surgery. He said, I said, well, what's the option? And he said, voice rest for 31 straight days, no talking. And I said, can I whisper? And he said, that's the worst thing you can do. No. I said, okay. And he said, you and Kim are going to have to exchange notes. So after 31 days, I went back, and he said, well, we still have a, an issue here. He said, but you're going to have to be on complete bed rest. So I had to go speech therapy for a year, and um, thank goodness I found a mm. wonderful person here in Colorado where we moved to. We, you know, I had no job. I mean, no, no pipes, no show. Yeah. And as Jerry Williams used to say, Jordan, I didn't even have a time. Right. I didn't even have a party, man. No dinner. <laughs> yeah, no dinner, right. Well, and I was gone. It's and, interesting, uh, Joe, the crossroads that you came to. It was physical in nature, and it yet demanded of you a decision. And it's the toughest decision in the world to make when you love what you do and you can't do it anymore. However, you said you wrote on a chalkboard. It, it's almost a, a metaphor for what you've become, a writer, a full-fledged <laughs> yeah. writer. So let's morph into that a little bit and talk about the writing and Radio Pro is a, I, I know it's a cliche to say the Bible, but it is a Bible, one of many great Bibles of the industry. The idea for it was yours, and then the execution. Let's talk about both. Well, what happened was, not to get in my wife's hair, literally, I said, uh, she said, why don't you write? Because I couldn't talk. So that's when I decided to write Radio Pro. And I didn't want it, as you know, Jordan, I didn't want it. And by the way, my friend Jordan Rich is too humble to say this. But he did the audio version. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. It says, with an introduction by author Joe Martell, Radio Pro, How to Be a Real Radio Personality, and read by Jordan Rich. Radio <laughs> pros and legends share their it secrets to success. And I'm, I'll always be grateful for you doing that, my friend, because there's no way I could have written, uh, I could have read all, all that book. But anyway, um, yeah, so I, I said, I don't want this just to reflect my own highs and lows on the air over 41 years. So I reached out to people like you and others, over 100, to get their opinions and input. And I really, I'm really proud of the book because I think it does give a real candid assessment of the business, how to get into it, what to do, do everything you can, as a matter of fact, to get your, you mentioned that a short while ago, to get your foot in the door. And then you're going to have some down times. You're going to get depressed. You're going to be working for people you don't particularly like. And, and, and it's all in here. And it's not just my opinion. It's from a lot of 
professional broadcasters. And as I said, I'm really, really pleased with the results. I know that you're an Emerson grad and you went to Emerson College years ago, but this kind of stuff is so important in teaching people about the media business, particularly radio. It's not turning on the mic and and running the controls. You can teach that in a half a day. It's attitudes. It's how to handle people. It's how to be responsible and what pride of work really means. I, there, there's much more to it than how-to is what I'm saying. Absolutely. And you, you I, I know you're familiar with this. Gary Berkowitz used to tell me all the time, Joey, when you finish your show, leave the building. I don't want you on the radar screen. And boy, I'll tell you, that is super (laughs) advice. Keep a low profile. Do your job. Don't get mixed up in any kind of shenanigans that are going on, and and, and you'll survive. And unfortunately, I did not follow my own advice lots of times because I have a big Italian mouth, as you know, Jordan. And uh, (laughs) I would open it sometimes at the wrong time. And I got myself in trouble. If I had to do it over again, I probably would do it all the same. But I'm trying to pass on what I did the right way and some things I did the wrong way. And um, one thing I think the new people in the business need to realize is that it's not your radio station. It's, uh, it's somebody else's. And it's their license on the line. And not that I tried to jeopardize that in any way. But what I'm saying is, I used to get real protective of the show, of the hours I was on the air. And that's okay. You want to believe in what you're doing, and what you're doing is right. You're not going to go on there to torpedo uh, the radio station by any means. But at the same time, they do have a policy, and they do have a format to follow. And you, you, you must adhere to that. And if you don't, you're going to find yourself on the sidewalk looking back in the radio station. My direction's going to take us back, and then we're going to move forward to the very latest book. I want to spend some time with you on that. But I want to go back in the radio history to talk about your run here in Boston, particularly teamed up with what would have seemed as the most unlikely partner, Andy Mose. You had a very successful run, and teaming up with someone or being teamed up with someone is not the easiest thing in the world for chemistry to develop. So let's talk a little bit about Joe and Andy and how that evolved. Well, we were together nine and a half years. Andy was a traffic reporter. Uh, We had a van, the ROR van, and Andy would go up and down the Southeast Expressway, and uh, supposedly he didn't really do that. He actually did the reports from his kitchen table of course he would he would pirate the reports from wbz as a matter of fact and joe green and then joe was on like five minutes before we did traffic and Andy would write all the notes down that joe said and they'd go on the air having coffee from his kitchen well when the management found out about that that they put the kibosh to that real fast and Andy was back out on the road but the traffic reports became secondary to the raps that andy and i would do around them so one day, Gary came to me, Berkowitz again, and uh, gosh, I owe my whole Boston career to that man. And he, he said, I'm going to bring Andy in the studio for two-week trial. And I said, oh, no. I really did, because Andy was the total opposite of me, Jordan. I mean, <laughs> talk about two different characters, Andy and me. And I said, okay, we'll give it a shot. Well, it worked. And nine and a half years later... Mm-hmm. Uh, we were still doing morning drive radio. It it worked for all kinds of weird reasons. But one of the cool things about Andy, as everybody remembers in the Boston market, is that he had connections everywhere. He seemed oh, yeah. to know everybody. Frazier, of course, Kelsey Grammer. Didn't he serve as a sort of consultant on that yeah. show? 
Yeah, they'd fly him out to Hollywood, and the and the screenwriters guild was not happy because Andy wasn't a member. So he would sit in on these on these high profile uh, writing sessions, and he would say things like, "There's no feedback. You need feedback on that microphone." And they were the little gems that they wanted on the show, and he got a big cash call for doing that. And uh, but you know, Andy. Andy was real special. I mean, I loved Andy, even though we were complete opposites. He would go into the AP reporter. This, he found out where this guy, his office was at midnight when he was, like, closing down a bar. And he'd go up and he'd bring him, like, he found out what his favorite sandwich was. And he'd bring the sandwich to this guy. I can't even remember where the office was for the Associated Press. And the guy, he said, the guy's all alone at night, Joey. So I brought him a sandwich. I found out his favorite, and I said, why'd you do that? He said, you watch the next time we want to get a split on the New England feed from Associated Press about Joe and Andy having so-and-so on the air. He'll yeah. do it. Smart. And by gosh, he did. That was yeah. smart, and there were so many things like that over the years. You guys did so many charities and, oh, and public events. There's one thing, though, that I think is important, a teaching tool, and that is your ability. Let's put you into the spotlight here. Your ability to still pilot the show and steer the show, work within the parameters of a two-man operation, but be the captain of the ship. How important is it in a team approach to anything, TV or radio, to have somebody at the helm like you? Well, you can only have one quarterback. Ask Tom Brady. Not that I compare myself with him, but the greatest quarterback of all time in my estimation. You can't have two people throwing the football. And we reached a juncture in in the studio Andy didn't know anything about it. He would say, Joey runs all the controls, and he sets up the show, the format. He knows when to go to the news breaks and the traffic breaks. And that's what my job was. But it was also to rein Andy in so that he didn't go too far overboard. Because he was, a, as you know, Jordan, he was a loose cannon. Oh yeah. I mean, he said anything and did anything he wanted to. And we didn't want to blow away, you know, half the listeners. Half the listeners loved him. Half the listeners hated him. I remember one day I said to him, first of all, backing up a little bit, when he, like maybe the third day he was in with me, I said, you can't attack everybody that calls. They've got to like you before you can bring that up in your own personality. And he said, okay, I, I can do that. And he, he mellowed a little bit. So he was real kind to old people and children particularly. And it worked. But I got to tell you, we reached a juncture, I think two or three years in, where he wanted to throw the football. And we hit, we hit a collision course. And I said, Andy, there can only be one quarterback. You know, you were supposed to take 30 seconds with that bit because we're backed up with commercials up to yin-yang. I said, you can't do that. And he said, well, I think it was a good bit and it was worth the airtime. And, you know, we, so we had a sit-down meeting about it, and, and management supported me at the time. They said, look, Joe's the senior guy here. He's throwing the football. You catch it. And Andy said, okay. Andy was pretty cool that way. But uh, you you can't have two people in there because you're going to have mass confusion. Uh, You're going to be running late on everything. Traffic isn't going to get on on time. Uh, Bits aren't going to fly the way they should. And I had to set him up on a lot of different things. And I remember one day Andy paid me a great compliment. Somebody came up to him at a function we were doing and said, "Yeah, you're so funny, man. You're the best thing going. I'm standing there in the shadows, right? Which is it was okay, because I, I, I thought Andy was one of the most creative people I've ever worked with. And he was naturally funny. He didn't have to dig down into the sewer for his comedic ta- talent. And uh, he said, Joey's funny, too. He said he just doesn't get a chance to 
to show it on the air as much because he's the straight guy. And I and I'll never forget he said that. And I I want I want to hug him because mm. you know when you're doing the straight bit and hey not to compare ourselves with Martin and Lewis. Other people in broadcasting did, and I'm grateful for that. But I know how Dean Martin felt lots of times when he said, enough is enough, I want to go out on my own. <laughs> yes. Because, geez, after a while, you're working your butt off in there for four straight hours, and when you get off the air, everybody's you know slapping the, your partner on the back, saying, what a great show, what a great show. Right. And you walk down the hall and get a cup of coffee and, and hang your head and drive to, you know go to your car and drive home. And it, and it kind of hurts, but... We made good radio for nine and a half years, and then uh, he decided that he wanted to go out on his own, and I wished him Godspeed, and he went over to EEI, and I stayed at ROR for another three years uh, doing solo. Great story, great story, and there's a lot about Radio Pro with what you just mentioned, Joe, in terms of how to handle that situation, a delicate situation. Final segment here to talk about what we've teased a couple of times, and that's the Robert Urich story that you have written. And before we get to the book, let's get to the fact that Spencer for Hire was filmed in Boston, and so he was a a resident here with his lovely wife at the time, and you got to know him uh, both on and off the air. Tell us more about that. One morning, uh, Bob, uh, Bobby McGinnis, a teamster, great guy, uh, would drive Bob into location shoot for Spencer. And they were driving down in the RV, and Bob said, who are these two characters on the radio? And Bobby was a longtime listener, and he said, Joe and Andy. He said, they're Boston, man. you got to listen to them. He said, they're crazy. He said, I really like them. So we had a, a bit on the air at that particular day. I think it was a Wednesday called Name That Disease. And Dr. Peter Masucci, a longtime friend of mine, would come on with symptoms for a disease, and people had to call in and, and guess the disease. And being one of the medical mecca- meccas of the world, we never had a problem getting an answer. And Bob called in and got the answer. I can't remember what the disease was, but I remember he called. And he liked it. He had fun joking around with us. And a couple of days later, maybe a week later, he came by the station to say hi. And uh, I remember when he walked in the, the studio... I had this look on my face that I know you're an actor, but I don't have a clue what you were in. And he read my mind and said, you don't know who I am. I said, well, I know you're Robert Urich, of course. He said, I was in a little show called Vegas, Joe. And I said, oh, I, I never watched it. I said, hey, I'm a radio guy. I'm up at 3.30 in the morning. This is before DVRs and DVDs and stuff. And I said, I, I'm in bed, you know, like at 8.30 at night. And he laughed and he gave me a big bear hug and he said, I'll let you in on a little secret. My wife, Heather, and I never watched Vegas either. <laughs> and we became lifelong friends from that moment on. And uh, he was a great guy. And when he passed on, Kimmy, my wife, was doing a search online to see if there was a book about him. She didn't find any. And she said, for your next book after Radio Pro, you should write a book about Bob. And I called Heather, and she was all for it. She said, if anybody can write a book about Bob it's you because you knew him they had signed on with a well-known author and Bob took it back because he didn't like the way it was going so I felt really complimented by Heather and uh, gee we we exchanged emails every day for three and a half years and and talked on the phone a couple of times a month and I think you know that she passed away in December of 2017 and it was so sudden mm-hmm. Jordan mm-hmm. Uh, she was diagnosed with uh, terminal brain cancer in November, and she died on Christmas Eve yeah. of that same year. And um, 
It was a tragic loss, and I still miss her. And I feel really badly because she never got to read one page of the input that she gave me for the book. And well, but somehow I think she'll find it, out about it, it. It's a great story because of TV trivia fans will probably appreciate the fact that doesn't he still hold a record for having the most starring roles in the most number of series? He sure enough does, 16. 16 different television shows. I remember one day I brought that up to him, and he said, oh, thanks a lot. So now I'm, I'm, I'm trivial. I'm the discussion of <laughs> trivia. I said, Bob, come on. I said, that's quite a compliment. And he started laughing again. He was a great guy. He never gave up on his faith, Jordan. I want to mention that. Um, five years he fought cancer. He was a spokesperson for the American Cancer Society. Here he is going for treatment himself when it came back. And yet that night he, he would be out making personal appearances, speaking about never giving up hope, never giving up faith, that cancer can be cured. He had synovial cell sarcoma. And if I can mention this, Segal is the doctor, research person, who's right in your neck of the woods in Cambridge. She just got a big grant to um, work more on finding a cure, not only for synovial cell sarcoma, which attacks the soft tissue of the joints. In Bob's case, it was in his groin. But she's also working to isolate this particular gene that may, may, underlined, find a cure for other cancers like lung cancer. So Sakal Gadosh, K-A-D-O-C-H, remember that name. She's working right now as we speak in research in Cambridge and uh, doing a heck mm. of a job. Well, thank you for mentioning that, and thank you for doing this book that I'm very anxious to read. And uh, listeners uh, will tell you how you can get a copy of all of Joe's books at the conclusion. But this is so cool to know, first of all, how great you sound. You sound as oh, vibrant you, as ever, but also how cool it is to have this really second uh, career as a writer, a successful writer. I, I'm just so proud and so happy for you, Joe. Well, you know, I, you're the one that said, and I appreciate those kind words. You're a good guy and a good friend, a dear friend. We go way, way back through a lot of highs and lows in our own lives, as you know. And uh, I just feel that you're the one that said, I really want to read your next book. What are you going to write? <laughs> I remember you said that. And when we were talking about Radio Pro, well, here it is. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. I got to read the final proof the other night. And I, I came off the computer and I turned around. I looked at Kim and I said, you know what? This is, it's not because I wrote it. And hopefully it's not my ego coming through. But this is a really good book. And I think it's going to lift people up. There's so much negativism today that Bob was such a positive person that I hope people will, will walk away feeling good about it and feeling good about their own lives and, and what he stood for. I'm sure they will, Joe. And we're just uh, thrilled to connect with you. And people will uh, know that you're doing well in Colorado. you got a big spread, and you and the lovely Kimmy are, are knocking it out of the park out there. So all the best to you and continued success, whether writing or speaking. And you speak beautifully, so whatever. Thank you, Jordan. God bless you. Thank you. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.